Hey folks, welcome back to the Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Ayers. And in this podcast, we want to share mentorship to learn how to hunt, fish, and gather wild food. Our goal is to reduce barriers and create an inclusive and welcoming community for all folks who want to learn how to eat wild. So join us as we share stories, ethics, adventures, and knowledge about a way of life that's rooted in eating wild. Hey folks, welcome back to the Well Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Ayers. So in this podcast, we're kicking off a series where we're talking about wildlife management and we're talking about different wildlife species. Now I've invited a series of wildlife biologists, uh, particularly that work here in British Columbia for the Ministry of Forest Lands and Natural Resource Operations. And their job is to, well, manage a specific species and, uh, and part of their job is to set regulations and uh, ensure that these populations are sustainable. And uh, I thought it'd be fun to have a conversation with a number of biologists talking about the different species that they're responsible for. So we're kicking that off today with uh, with my friend Conrad Thiessen. He's a caribou biologist in the northwest part of Burr's Columbia, Region 6, if you're here in Burr's Columbia. And he's going to share his knowledge around managing caribou populations, flying around, counting populations, setting regulations. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about the species, uh, behavioral aspects of the species, what they eat. And all of this is hopefully so you can help better understand uh, this animal. And it's, if you're a new hunter, uh, just get, get some insight as to how you can plan your hunt. All right, so we'll get into that in a second. But... Um, I also want to let you know that this podcast, again, is brought to you by West Coast Kitchen. It's a backpack hunting food. This they're, They do a great job of putting whole food into a bag so you can enjoy it well on an extended hunt uh, in the backcountry. Now, if you're interested in checking out their products, you can go to their website, uh, Google West Coast Kitchen Canada, and you put the discount code in for Eat Wild, you'll get a deal on on whatever you buy. I would recommend checking out uh, their butter chicken or their Persian paprika beef dish. Super good. I just put my order in for our upcoming sheep trip, which I'll be eating their food for well, what amounts to twelve days, and that's the real benefit of their food is that. It's whole food, so it doesn't slow me down when I'm on a big trip. So looking forward to the meals on the trip, hanging out with them. Now, before I get started, too, I do want to dedicate this podcast to Dr. Valerius Geis. He passed away last week. Uh, very sad news, of course, for all of us here in the hunting and wa- wildlife management and conservation community. He was, uh, if you ever get a chance, you should, well, if you can get your hands on any one of his books, he wrote books on Moose, elk, sheep, goats, all the main uh, big game species that are present here in BC. He studied a number of these uh, animals and is a great storyteller. So he brings these animals to life through his storytelling, but provides you a scientific perspective on on um, how these animals uh, you know, get through their lives and, uh, and provides amazing insight into that world. Now, sadly, um, of course, he, I was actually... I actually asked him to come on the podcast a couple months ago and uh, I was kind of maybe a little bit, uh, I I was reluctant to just cold call a guy and be like, Hey, would you come on this podcast and check it out? Just because I know that the breadth of the work that he's done, I didn't know if he would, 
even respond to a, a request from the Wild Podcast to come on. And I emailed him, and within a couple hours, emailed back, and we had a great exchange of emails and storytelling over over email, and had a, had a phone call to talk about setting up the podcast. And I was, uh, um, yeah, we had set up a date, and of course, um, that uh, his health turned uh, just at that time and wasn't able to come on the podcast and join us. And I was. Uh, yeah, sad to miss that opportunity, but uh, his legacy lives on in, in, in the work that he's done and, and the people that he's mentored in the world. And uh, there's a number of other podcasts that have had the opportunity to have him on. And um, yeah, so I'll be thinking about Val Geis as I, as I talk to all these wildlife biologists over the next uh, month or two, and, uh, and, he'll, and he will be missed. All right, let's get into this one. Hey, Conrad, welcome to the Eat Well Podcast. Hey, Dylan. How's it going? Uh, it's going pretty good, man. It's cooled down a little bit here and uh, pretty excited to have you on here. I, I've um, had a bunch of conversations with you over the years, whether it's on Instagram or bugging you at work. And uh, every time I talk to you, I have a great conversation about uh, wildlife management and wildlife and, and wilderness. And uh, so I'm really pleased to uh, have you on the podcast here to chat about uh your your profession and and your area of work. So, um, anyways, Conrad, uh, maybe you could just tell me a little bit about for the, for our audience just about uh, what your role is, uh, where you work, and what you do. And uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about, about yourself. Sure. Um, yeah. So I I noticed on your podcast you usually start out with some kind of uh, um, acknowledgement of location. So I I'll start out with that. So I am calling in from the Wet'suwet'en um, traditional territory. Um, it's the Gidimdin clan, which is the wolf bear clan. Um, and yeah, actually in Skeena region, there's something like 30 plus First Nations that cover the region. So anyways, I'm, yeah, I'm calling in from Smithers and uh, I am the, uh, one of the senior wildlife biologists for the uh, Skeena region. And yeah, I've been in Smithers now for nine years and working for the BC government for going on 15 years. Um, I spent six years in Fort St. John in the Peace region. That's kind of where I started out my career in, in wildlife biology with the BC government anyways. Um, yeah, and my role here now is uh, we kind of have the region broken up into species leads amongst the biologists. And so uh, I have the role as um, the, the caribou lead for the wildlife team and do a bunch of other things as well, helping out on a bunch of different files. But um, yeah, I would say like through time, caribou has kind of become the thing that I spend a lot of time on. Awesome. I, I find the caribou a fascinating animal and I um, I really enjoy spending time with them in wilderness and I have grown to appreciate them more and more over the years as I I've um, been on a few caribou hunts now and, and uh, a couple of them went sideways on us just with the weather and, and uh, um, but I just really love where they live and I, and I love watching them from afar and uh, and yes, and I, and I've, I've learned a little bit about them, but I certainly have a lot of questions for you. So as I told you, as sort of leading up to this, the nature of this podcast, the series, which I'm so excited about having a, um, several of the, the provincial biologists on, um, is, uh, I, I'd like to just share with the audience a little bit about the species that you manage and, and how you manage them. And I think that should be kind of fun for, for folks to just get a bit of an insight as to what goes on in the world of a biologist and, and how we see wildlife and how we manage wildlife and how we, in the best of our ability, how we can share, um, um, how we understand, um, wildlife in this case, caribou. So this is gonna be a lot of fun, Conrad, but before we get too far into it, I, Okay, can you tell me about like your favorite day 
as a biologist. Like the most memorable day as a biologist in recent memory. In recent memory. So, yeah. Um, well, maybe go back as far as you want. <laughs> <laughs> My memory doesn't go back that far anymore. But, um, yeah, you know, being a biologist, like get to do some pretty amazing things. And I've had some pretty amazing experiences in my life through my career. And, um, yeah, there's, there's been some really great days and, um, I kind of spent the first, uh, I guess between my undergraduate degree and my graduate degree, I spent kind of four and a half years as a bit of a kind of vagabond biologist, just traveling around doing field work, different projects around the world kind of. And, um, I have to say like going through my whole career, some of my favorite days, uh, in the field would be, I worked on a marbled murrelet project out on the West Coast. And so we were based out of Tofino for part of the time and, and, uh, north of Powell River in Lund. And, uh, we had a crew that would go out at nights and, and catch the murrelets, uh, with salmon nets and spotlights and salmon nets. And they'd put on a, a transmitter. And then during the day, um, we had a helicopter in camp and the pilot and I would go out and look for them and, uh, eventually track down their, their nesting areas. And then we'd land and the pilot and I would hike into the, the nesting trees and, um, yeah, mirrorlets tend to nest in, in old growth forests on the coast. And, um, yeah, some of the best days were just, you know, these mirrorlets would always find the best places. And so we'd be hiking around in these amazing remote areas on the coast. And, um, yeah, I, I, I definitely have to say that was some of my best field work that I've done. Um, these days it's a bit different. Um, you know, I'm not walking around as much. It's pretty much all helicopter based and, um, but definitely, you know, it's hard to to pick a, a fond, like the fondest memory from some of the work more recently, but there's definitely some places in North Skeena where, you know, you're flying for multiple days and not seeing any roads, um, no real sign of trails or people. And, and uh, yeah, I've had, I've had some pretty spectacular moments doing that stuff as well. That, that, that's, that's right on. Um, I, I would just brought me back to my, I, I was a, my first job as a park ranger was in the Carmana Valley and there was an ongoing marble murelet study, uh, researching, well, count, counting and, and locating marble murelet nests. And, and, uh, part of the gig was, well, I go, I could be pretty lonely there as the, as the park ranger. So I'd go hang out with the biologist and they'd be part of the job was you lay down in the valley, like first thing at like, like five o'clock in the morning, you lay on the riverbed and then you watch the murelets fly by or fly out. I can't remember, but, uh, as they're yeah. coming and going from their nesting sites and trying to then eventually counting them and then going to find their, uh, but find their nests, which typically were on like the biggest, heaviest boughs of spruce trees, I think, or for, or cedar trees were, um, pretty, pretty cool job and pretty awesome work. Yeah. That, that mural that worked some of the first, it was, it was my very first time in a helicopter and, and we were flying in R44s and I don't know, because it was a university project or something, we kind of had the, our pilots were, we didn't have a very big budget. So our pilots were the, the, the top graduates of the flight school from that year. So they literally had like, I think they had 60 hours or something of flying and, and, uh, definitely ended up in, in a few places where one time I thought I was going to die for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I've, I've learned a lot since then and, and, uh, a little more picky with who I fly with these days. I've, I've kind of got to that place now too, uh, even these, these float trips that we do and, uh, you know, we flying into wilderness areas. I like kind of like to know my pilot pretty well before yeah. I, you know, jump into a plane and go to some remote strip or whatnot. So, um, so I know, so in recent years, you were saying that you've, you've been in the, uh, spent a lot of time doing your field work out of helicopters. And I have noticed that when I, when I follow you on Instagram and, uh, 
you've got tremendous pitchers and I, I I'm curious. I, I, there's these beautiful landscape shots, many of them from from helicopters and the work that you do capturing uh, and and collaring uh, wildlife and such. Um, are, are you a photographer as well? You must be. Well, I enjoy photography. <laughs> I don't know how you would define a photographer, but I, I enjoy doing photography. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel almost obligated in some ways to share those photos, just because um, through my work, I get to see places that the majority of people don't get to see. And, and I think, you know, I think, do think that like people seeing those places and, and knowing more and understanding them could lead to people being more connected to them and more, more apt to, you know, speak up when it comes to protection and things like that. Absolutely. Well, I think you do an amazing job of, uh, of sharing those places and you do a wonderful job. So I would call you a photographer because I, <laughs> I, I used to think that like, well, if you just put yourself in beautiful places, that makes, that makes for great pictures. But what really makes for great pictures is somebody that is, that can actually um, take advantage of those landscapes and, and tell the story. And uh, I think you do a nice job of that with, uh, with uh, the work you've been that. doing. So no, I really, I really enjoyed following you. Um, and I'll, I'll share your, your Instagram handle later in the, uh, in the podcast and in the show notes as well. So people can catch up with you there. And sure, uh, check yeah. out the photos, but yeah, definitely the, the wilderness landscapes are are spectacular, and it's something that certainly a passion for me. Is every year I try to do one or two trips into those wilderness mm-hmm. areas, and and uh, seeing those landscapes is just trying to find a way to see them. And you're pretty, mm-hmm. yeah, pretty pretty unique job to be able to, you know, uh, you know, be facilitated to go into those places and and uh, yeah. share those share those places and see them. And but thanks for sharing for yeah. sure. Yeah, there's days out there like just this last winter we're doing a sheep survey out um uh kind of northwest of Dee's Lake, I guess, and just, you know, the entire days flying around just kind of in awe of of everything around, right? And and you can't even describe like and we were flying long days, so seven hours in the machine and just unreal landscapes the entire time. You can't even begin to describe to somebody what that's like to see that it's almost overwhelming in some cases. Yeah, we're so lucky to have, and I think you know for for the you know for for the audience here, I think it's important. To, you know, most people are fairly familiar with our regional structure of of, uh, of um, how BC manages wildlife, and in Region Six, which where Conrad is the senior biologist, particularly the lead for caribou, is, is I'd say what what percentage of that unit do you think is still considered uh, wilderness, like not roaded, no pipelines, you know? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say probably if you looked at all the regions in the province, this would be the of the regions the least impacted by roads and whatnot. Um, Percentage-wise, that's a difficult one, but there are some management units that, um, like around Swan Lake, that has the Alaska Highway going through it. But other than that, and that it just kind of dips down into that management unit. Other than that, there's really no roads or um, like around Level Mountain and places like that. And towards the coast, it's just, yeah, completely no roads at all so it's um it's definitely unique in that sense um and you know having worked in the peace and and having spending a bunch of time in the muskwaka chica as well that's also another place but you know right on the edge of that there's there's quite a bit of development with forestry and oil and gas and whatnot so it's um the skeena is definitely a unique place in the province that way yeah i i I, uh, if i i would probably spend more time adventuring in that part of the world but i do know that the weather um, can be unpredictable, and I think mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, Connor. If you happen to, if I told you about our adventure, we talked, we consulted with you a little bit about where we were, what we were up to before we went. But uh, we ended up getting caught in that winter storm that showed up in the middle of August and pretty much wiped out our hunt. And 
I'm yeah. stuck in a tent for days on end. I think there's a few people that got hit by that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so there was a lot of I, I kind of heard through the grapevine. There was a number of people that were pretty tough, touch and go for survival, and actually a few people that didn't didn't make it um, out, um, uh, which was uh, quite tragic. But um, hey, was let's talk caribou for a bit. So I, okay, so I, I'm um, so the first question is, and I, and I think this is important to understand that like because when we talk about caribou, particularly caribou hunting, like I mean, uh, in the most of the province we would think of caribou and we would think species at risk. So where you work, uh, you know, can you, can you tell a little bit about the difference in the population or the herds and, and uh, in, in, in BC and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. So um, in BC, we have um, caribou broken down into three uh, ecotypes um, and so boreal caribou, kind of that, that one ecotype that crosses the whole boreal range across the, the, the country um, through to over to Quebec even. Um, and so they come into the very northeast corner of British Columbia, and that's kind of the flat area north of Fort St. John, uh, east of Fort Nelson. Um, and so that's kind of one group, and those aren't hunted. Um, and then we have the southern mountain caribou, and those are the ones that are kind of the ones we hear the most about in the news. Um, and they're kind of down to the U.S. border, and they're the populations that are blinking out uh, or at high high risk of, of being lost in the province. And then as you far, move farther north and, and west, um, it kind of is there's a bit of a transition though, zone there where um, the ecotype kind of switches to uh, northern mountain caribou, but some of the northern mountain caribou um, also are, are not doing real well. Um, even just from my house here, I can see the Telqua mountain range and, and there's a herd of caribou there, the Telqua herd and, and, you know, they're in the, you know, less than 30 animals in that herd. So, um, you know, it's not as simple as saying one ecotype is, is okay. And the others aren't, there's kind of, um, differences within the ecotypes as well. Um, and just a quick description on the ecotypes. So the boreal, they, they live in kind of those peat bog, flat boggy areas, um, where there's not not really much for hills or or terrain, and so they're um, kind of living in areas where there's not much for moose, and there's not much um, uh, predation. Really, that's kind of their way of escaping predation. And then the southern mountain uh, ecotype, they tend to um, live at high elevations throughout the year, and so they're um, in deep snow areas. Where in the winter, they're kind of foraging on uh, uh, arboreal lichens or lichens that are growing on trees. And then you get to the northern groups, and they're um, sometimes wintering at high elevation in kind of windswept, windswept uh, alpine areas. But then also some of them migrate to lower elevations uh, to these kind of pine flats, and they're eating um, terrestrial or ground lichens um, in those areas. And um, so, yeah, kind of as you get farther north, they tend to be doing better and to the west. And, you know, we, there are some populations in in uh, the north right now that are increasing. Um, uh Many of them we think are stable, but to be honest, there's there's many of the populations that we don't know the trend of the population, um, whether they're increasing or decreasing or stable. Um, we make some assumptions based on the remoteness of them and the lack of impacts to them, um, but we really don't have uh, a full picture on all, on all of those herds that that are up in the the north. Well, maybe that goes to my my next question. So how how do you, how do you establish a number of on a herd? How do you count caribou? Mm-hmm. And so it's easier when you have a herd that has 30 animals in it. You can be a little <laughs> more precise. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although that being said, uh, you know, if there's one or two somewhere away from some of the larger groups, you may not see them. And so you're never going to count everything that's out there. 
Um, but generally speaking, those southern herds, it's kind of uh, a minimum population count. So you fly an area and you try and see every single caribou that's there. And so you get this count that's kind of known as a uh, minimum number known alive. So you know that there's at least that many. And there's probably not a lot more, but there's at least that many. Um, as you move into those boreal herds, very difficult to count. Um, you know, they're in these areas that, that it's difficult to, to know where to look for them. Um, and, you know, I would say that those, those groups, I don't think we have any really good counts on them, to be honest, but they would be kind of minimum counts as well. Um, more recently, we've been doing uh, mark resite um, population estimates for some northern herds. Um, and for those, um, it's quite a process. So we'd go out the year before we're planning to do this survey and put out collars on the animals, on a, a subset of the animals, say 20 to 30 collars, GPS collars on animals. Um, and some of them use, we use uh, kind of a sleeve that goes over the collar with a number on it. Um, so we can kind of identify those animals more easily from the helicopter. Um, so the collars are out there, they're doing their thing for the year. Hopefully most of them survive through to the next year when we're gonna do the survey. And we go back to that area and we fly the area without um, kind of blind is what we call it. So we don't have the, the telemetry receiver on or we don't know, uh, we haven't looked at the location, recent locations of the GPS collars. We don't know where any of the caribou are. And we'd go out and we um, try to see as many as we can. And we use the collars as a way to um, kind of uh, gauge the proportion of the population we've seen. So let's say we put out, I'm just going to use a round number. We, we don't generally put out 100 collars, but for a round number, let's say we put out 100 collars. Um, and then we go back to that area, do the survey, and we see, let's say, 75 of the 100 collars. Um, there's some more kind of complex statistics that go into this, but um, in that case, generally, we would say we've seen 75% of the herd. So we can then extrapolate out the total number of caribou we saw and say, okay, that was 75% of the herd. And then we can do a correction to say, okay, this is what about 100% of the herd would be. And that also gives us the ability to put um, uh, confidence intervals around that estimate. Um, and that's something that, um, that often people don't know is that, you know, there's very rarely that when an estimate happens for a population uh, that we never know exactly the number of animals are out there. So we're going to give it a confidence interval. So we're going to say that's a thousand animals plus or minus a hundred or 200. And so we can do that um, based on the caller data and, and the number of animals that we recited that were collared. Well, that's pretty interesting. So you're kind of building that you're testing your data as you go, as, as you, as you're out there. And, and uh, that, that's interesting. So, so, so the, the complexity though becomes that this is, like you can't do this over this entire wilderness landscape and, and capture, I mean, I mean, I guess if we had endless resources and, and lots of Conrads available to do this work, uh, but I know that there's, you know, we just, this is difficult to, uh, so what are the limitations for trying to kind of correlate or understand this, the, the population dynamics over or population amounts over the, over the larger landscape? Mm-hmm. Um, so to be clear, it's it's uh, not just me. There's whole teams of people that do this. So there, <laughs> I know so there not, are lots of Conrads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely not taking all the credit for that. And, you know, really cool, actually, more recently is uh, many of the nations, too, are um, have increased their capacity within their, um, their governments um, to be able to deliver some of these projects on their own. And so um, that kind of doubles our capacity, right? So we have the BC government doing it. Um, we have First Nation governments out there doing work. And then we have collaborations between the governments and 
um, those are really awesome and I, and I enjoy being part of those. So, um, but it's true, you know, we can't do, you know, for moose populations, especially ones that are hunted, um, you know, um, that are highly hunted, we, we try and do like a five-year interval. So we try and get a population estimate for a population of moose every five years. Um, for some of these herds, like the one we're going to be doing uh, uh, this Mark Resite survey for with the Tall Ten this year, um, the Senaglodi herd, they have never had a population estimate. Um, and many of the populations haven't. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of exciting that uh, we can get to these. Um, but again, we can't do them every year. So we're kind of trying to set set up a kind of a 10 to 20 year plan of, of being able to slowly get a population estimate for each of the herds and then come back around and uh, do it again in say 10 years, um, which is a long time in between. Um, and so it makes it difficult um, when you kind of have that interval between surveys to, to really get a good idea of what the trend of the population is. Um, if you're doing it every five years, you can kind of get an idea on a graph. You can plot out the dots and see whether it's going up or down. And But every 10 years, you know, it, it does start to get to a point where um, you don't know. Can you, do, you draw, do you draw a line between those two points? <laughs> yeah. Are you in a down year or an up year? <laughs> you you mm-hmm. don't have enough data to sort of tell you the frequency. So, well, that's that's interesting. Yeah. So, so then we also do use um, composition surveys. And so those are different in that we're not trying to get a population estimate or we're not trying to necessarily count the total number of animals in the herd. But we're going out and we're trying to see as many as we can with the amount of money we have. Um, and then we're looking at um, the composition of bulls, cows, and calves. And so we can use that information then also to uh, try and get a gauge on the population. So if we're seeing very low calf recruitment, it could be an indicator that the population is declining. Um, but again, one point in time of a, a data point isn't necessarily going to give you a trend, whether they're increasing or decreasing. You're going to know at that point in time that it's not good that year, but maybe the next year is good and the next year is good. And so you really do have to kind of link those together as best as possible. Um, and then we're also getting these bull to cow ratios, which is one of the, the factors we use for um, looking at hunting regulations and whatnot. Okay. That, that, that's a good place to go here. So just to, just to clarify for, so I know what calf recruitment means, but maybe tell us what calf recruitment yeah. means. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, so, so when we do a survey, we're going to count all the bulls, all the cows, all the calves. And so recruitment of a calf would be um, the, the technical way recruitment would work is when a, uh, an animal is born and it gets to the age where it can reproduce itself. Um, very rarely do we able, are we able to, to measure that. Um, so for us, we consider calf recruitment to be like a late winter or in some cases a fall recruitment. So did the, did the calf survive to a certain point where it's likely to, to live? Um, for the most part, caribou and most animals, highest levels of mortality occur early in their life, like in the first uh, few weeks or month months. And as they get older, um, their rates of survival increase. So, um, you know, when you get to a cow, caribou, and for example, in the Talqua herd, we, we have some animals there that we've been monitoring for quite a long time. And when they get to a certain age, they don't really die very often. They, they get to generally a very old age. Um, that being said, of course, predation occurs and, and that can happen at any age group. But yeah, so cr- recruitment is basically looking at survival of calves to a point that they probably are going to have a higher survival. Okay. So yeah, more, more calves that survive than population grows less than right. less calves that survive through that first winter, particularly then the, the population may not increase or it may decline. Um, can you tell me about the, um, 
the difference between the, the importance of the, the cow calf ratio and, and what some of the thresholds are for uh, you know, breeding cows uh, and uh, throughout the, the, the breeding months? Sure. So um, we kind of use a metric of uh, 20. So we kind of look at, um, we count all the cows and then we use a metric of like looking at a hundred of the cows, the proportion of calves to a hundred cows. So um, that metric we're looking at like 25 calves per hundred cows is kind of the ratio we look for um, for a stable population. If it's below that, um, it's possible the population is declining. If it's above that, it's possible the population is increasing. Um, for that population increase, it does though also depend on the amount of uh, adult mortality. So if if you might have a high calf recruitment, so above 25 calves per hundred cows, but if a lot of the adult females are are dying, it could still end up in a declining population. Okay, fair enough. Um, and how many bulls you have to have hanging around for a hundred cows to to achieve their you know, that you know break the threshold of twenty five? Yeah, so for... a bit different for bulls. Um, so it's it's kind of like a it's like in the bottom end threshold. So we wouldn't want it to go below that level. So we use uh, thirty five bulls per hundred cows. So if it's below that, then then there's something going on. Maybe there's too much harvest. Um, that's, yeah, I mean, it's more likely that it's that rather than predation because predation isn't necessarily selective towards bulls or cows. Um, so we, we don't want it to go below 35, but we don't aim for 35 either. So we're trying to keep it well above that threshold. Um, generally speaking. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and so the obvious thing, well, from a, from a, a hunter's perspective, if you were to harvest a, a bull or a cow, uh, it you know it, there's there's a lot more I guess surplus of bulls in the population than there would be cows if you don't want to have an impact on the population or in fact you want to continue to hunt without with allowing the population to grow so generally across the province we, we that's why our wildlife model allows for the harvest of bucks and bulls is to as long as there's a few bulls or bucks hanging around I guess they still manage to breed the majority of uh, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And in caribou, especially, it's important because um, compared to moose, for example, moose can have twins um, and they're going to have a calf that, like a yearling cow can have a calf, um, whereas caribou that you're going to look at maybe two years old before they have a calf and they're only ever having single calves. So the the capacity for them to increase in, in number is less than something like moose or deer that, that can maybe reproduce more quickly and the population can expand more quickly. Okay, cool. Okay, I got another question for you. How do you trap and collar a caribou? Yeah, so um, the the method that's pretty much being used right now is using a net gun. So capturing from a helicopter, firing a, a net gun and a net over a caribou, um, which physically immobilizes it. Um, then a spider the web, basically shooting a spider yeah. web from your wrist, but you use a gun instead. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a square net and it's got a, a weight on each end and it's basically a rifle. Um, mostly it's a 308 cartridge based on a 308 blank and it shoots these heavy weights out, flings the net out, uh, over top of the caribou, uh, kind of tangles them up. They go down, uh, crew gets out and, um, yeah. And then are able to blindfold it, put hobbles on it and do what needs to be done, putting on a collar, taking samples and things like that. And so the caribou stay awake throughout the entire process. So in that case, in, so in that instance, it's physical immobilization rather than using chemicals or drugs to uh, chemically immobilize. 
Okay, so so okay, I'm curious. Okay, well, first question that came to mind is like, how often, who who's on the? Are you are you the trigger man? Uh, I do do that. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. cool. <laughs> that's cool. Okay, and okay, so what's your? Can I ask how how what your success rate is? Like, how, how many times do you miss versus <laughs> successful? You should, uh, you know. like full on misses is pretty rare, um, but it can happen that uh, a shot maybe isn't fully square over the animal, maybe a bit far back. So you kind of want to shoot the net so that they almost run into the net um, yeah. and get tangled. If you kind of are a little too far back, um, it can get caught on their antlers and then, but not around their front feet. And yeah. it kind of drags behind kind of in a streamer, we call it. And so they might be dragging a net. Um, and so that would require a second net to be put on unless they get the net caught on a tree or something. Um, yeah. So, you know, you know, you want a one, one net shot for sure, but uh, it's not uncommon to have a two net and occasionally three nets. Okay, cool. How quickly can you reload? Uh, it depends on the gun. So there's some pretty cool technology out there. Um, the newer guns uh, have kind of a hydraulic fitting on them. So it actually, um, you can remove the entire four barrels come off and you have another four barrels that are already preloaded and you just clip it right on. So you can be reloaded in uh, 10 seconds. It's like a magazine. that's cool all right i didn't know that's cool you know about that all right so i'm curious how quickly so like when you get them uh, like how quick like how compliant is a caribou when it's in a net and and you know from when you kind of get the hobbles on or the blindfold on what's that process like yeah and it seems to vary like by herd even or like the farther south like some of these talco caribou um they're a bit smaller and a little more docile and so um in, in those cases they're not really fighting much at all but um some of them uh up by the yukon border they can get pretty rank and and uh yeah it can take some some good energy you need a bit of mass body mass to be able to manage it sometimes and um especially when they're standing like so let's say a net goes over it but it doesn't actually fall down it might still be standing and you got to to knock the caribou to the ground they get a real kind of uh, sawhorse kind of stance and it can be hard to to knock them mm-hmm. over for sure yeah they are very stable looking <laughs> legs kind of splayed out everywhere yeah yeah well that that's fascinating stuff but uh, i thanks for sharing that i, I it's uh, the, the images on your instagram really do tell the story of some of this uh some of this work so i encourage people to go find that um so i'm thinking a little bit about uh like we, we sort of talked i mean I, I, I've gone hunting caribou a few times and, and I, I'm always, one of the questions that comes up with me is like, you know, first of all, what, what are they eating? And, and you kind of hit on that a little bit, but maybe break down, like, what does a caribou eat? Especially if, and, and let's assume that we're, I think you kind of already talked about this. I mean, obviously we don't hunt, we're not hunting caribou in the Southern part of BC where there's threatened populations. So what we're really talking about is these, if you, if you are happen to go on a wilderness hunt to one of these populations that's growing or stable in the Northern part of BC. Um, and so, so generally what type of habitat are those caribou in when we're talking about the populations that are more suitable for, for, to sustain the pressure of a hunt and, uh, and what are they, what are they eating? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that um, like during the hunting season at that time of year. Yeah. Um, yeah. What should I be looking for as a hunter? Like what, what should I be thinking about? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, they're definitely, um, lichen is always a part of their diet, but in the summer when you have lots of, uh, different kinds of green foliage and, and fresh, fresh foliage like that, they're going to, they're going to be eating that a lot. And so they're going to be browsing on willows. They're going to be browsing on, 
uh, dwarf birch and things like that that are out there. Um, Forbs and, and grasses, they're going to they're gonna take what they can. That's kind of the highest value nutritionally and protein-wise. Um, so it, it's quite a range like that, but they're not going to be browsing um, on big trees and things like that. So you're generally going to be finding them in, in open areas. Um, and so they're, yeah, kind of the, the smaller, smaller shrubs and whatnot. Um, there's actually some really neat work where um, they had they took some uh, captive caribou and they they kind of moved them around BC and other parts. I think even in Alaska and maybe the Yukon, and they kind of released them and then they uh, watched and they kind of had them in these fenced areas. So they kind of semi tame caribou and they and they watched to see what they're feeding on and and uh, yeah, there's some interesting work out there for sure about that and and also from Ontario, slightly different, but. They had some uh, camera collars on, and so they were kind of watching, looking forward, so they could see what the caribou was doing, and and some really neat footage of them walking through the forest and and kind of like search and destroy for mushrooms. So they'd be walking, and they'd see a mushroom, you'd see them walk to it, eat the mushroom, they look around, they go to the next mushroom and eat it. So they're they're pretty generalist that way. I'd say probably winter is the time when they're they get a little more focused and and probably focusing more on on those uh, the lichens and and for these northern animals, kind of cratering down through the snow using their hooves to dig down through the snow and um, that's kind of one of the things that you'll see when you're either flying or, or out on the ground to, to really let you know that there's caribou in areas is, is these big cratering pits through the snow that they're they're digging down to, to forage oh interesting yeah yeah um, all right I've also noticed when I've hunted caribou that I can never really figure out what they're doing because like they're so say for example in, in so the area we were in in the in the Cassiar Mountains, I mean, it's just expansive rolling tundra forever without, with the occasional rocky uh, mountain poking up and, you know, and, and across these giant plains of rolling alpine tundra-y stuff. And, um, and you see a caribou sort of coming to, like, c- coming off one of these mountains and working its way across this flat. And you're like, okay, we're going to, like, cut them off at the pass here. He's obviously heading that direction. So if we run that way, we can get a good look at him as he passes in front of us. And we get set up and he comes down and then turns around and then wanders completely the other direction. Doesn't go back up to where he's coming from, which would be sort of logical. Like maybe he came down to eat and now he's going back up to where he bedded down. No, he's just wandering over somewhere else. Just like totally like nonsensical. Where yeah. is is there any sense that they're nonsensical wandering behaviors? Um, I, I, kind of one of my mentor, caribou biologists, uh, Mark Williams, who used to be one of the biologists here, he he used to say that, you know, when you think you have caribou figured out, they'll do something totally different and prove you wrong. So they're definitely, you know, I think there's probably sense to what they're doing. We just don't necessarily know what it is. Um, you know, it could be insect avoidance. Maybe they're trying to find windy areas or cooler areas where there might not be as many insects, um, you know, in that kind of pre-rut period. The bulls could just be wandering around looking for cows and trying to find groups of cows that maybe they could hook up with. Um, but yeah, they, they move a lot. And, you know, I think you got to be ready to move with them when you're hunting or wait in a place where they might come by because, you know, you're not going to be able to keep up with them. <laughs> yeah, it's another it's another thing. I I, I, I was up in the Yukon um, uh, on, a, on a caribou hunt with a friend of mine who's uh, – uh, Champagne Ajax First Nation up there and took me up, took me out. And, uh, we we're on the driving off the Dempster Highway and there's caribou herds just crossing the highway up there. So we see a, a big group of, 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 uh, not big, a, a small group of, of, of caribou, but there's a couple of big bulls in, in this, in this herd. 
So we're like, okay, this is great. We're, we'll go after them. And they're, they're maybe 500 meters off the, off the highway. And you're allowed to hunt right there. You're allowed to hunt off the highway. So I kind of put my sneak on and I kind of sneak towards them. And I, I, I kind of push in about 150 yards and I poke my head up and they're still 500 yards away. Yeah. And then, so I like get down a little bit slower and kind of run on this, have a little bit of cover with this, this, uh, Marine that's in front of me. And then I go another 200 meters or rush up there. And then I poke my head up. Oh, they're still 200. They're still 500 meters away. <laughs> and it's, it's like, they were just like, and they weren't, they weren't reacting at all. They were just like moseying away, but they, I, they were keeping their eye on me. Like they knew exactly that. I was like, Oh, like most guys can't shoot accurately at 500 yards. So I'm good. Like yeah. it almost <laughs> seems like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a response to keep, I mean, maybe there is something to that. Is there something to that? Like, is it is it actually a natural response from caribou to keep predators at a certain range away from them and they just continue to wander away and take advantage of their long legs and big hooves to cover ground? Definitely, like, predator avoidance strategy is to be able to keep something in sight and but far enough away so that they can get away. Definitely. And so, you know, you often hear people say, oh, caribou were really curious. They were coming towards me and they wanted to know what I was. And, you know, they're, they're dumb. They're not very smart because they're coming towards me. But they're doing that because, you know, it's better sometimes to know where the danger is and to keep an eye on it than it is to be farther away where the danger might have moved around and might come out from some other direction and, and it and uh, yeah, and get you basically. Totally. Well, I find that mule deer do the same thing, but they, they're more like 80 to 100 yards where they feel kind of comfortable and they'll look back at you after right. they've been disturbed and which is well within range, unfortunately for mule yeah. deer. But, but uh, definitely the, I, I struggle. I've, I, I would. I think that the caribou hunt would be a fairly challenging hunt to be successful consistently because of that. Just how 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 well they move across that country and how little how exposed you are as a predator and um, you know short of you know having those incredibly long shots. I, I which is I'm not a fan of. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, have have you hunted caribou yourself? Have you ever? Have you? Ever- I have. Yeah, yeah, a couple times and uh, successful once. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was, you know, again, kind of most of my work being in helicopters and flying, just really refreshing to be in caribou range and seeing caribou, just being caribou, not, not running away from a helicopter and, and, you know, just observing them. And, and, uh, yeah, it was, I've, I've really enjoyed it. And, and the meat was spectacular and, um, yeah, going on another one this fall. So oh, it's exciting. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that offline. I'd love to know more <laughs> yeah. what you're up to. Um, I've heard like a funny thing about like, like that, that I haven't had a lot of caribou meat. Like I've, I've had a few caribou meals. Uh, uh, can you describe what it's like, like in relative to some of the other game meats you would have, would have had? Like, mm-hmm. um, I'm not very des- good at describing taste necessarily, but, um, you know, the, the one I got was kind of early September, like second week of September, September 11th, I think it was. And, uh, the meat was spectacular. Like it's, um, the one thing I did notice about it was the fat was kind of maybe had a slightly different taste. The meat itself wasn't gamey or anything. Um, the, the fat was very distinctive and I wouldn't call it gamey, but it was, um, I don't, I can't necessarily describe it. Um, uh, you know, I have heard stories from people that, you know, caribou in the rut, the meat is, is not as palatable. Uh, never had that experience myself, so I, I can't comment on that, but, um, yeah, you know, I think it was, it was really good tasting meat. Um, uh, maybe, yeah, I don't know, maybe more similar to elk than moose, maybe like kind of elk deer, but, um, yeah, was, I've had some really, really great meals. 
Wonderful. I, I have heard though, yeah, as you alluded to there, that there's a, there is, is sort of a time, a timeline when they are much more palatable. If they get into the rut, they, they definitely take on the flavor of, of the running period. When is the caribou rut? Yeah. So they kind of start to aggregate kind of in the, like around the, the last two weeks of September, they're going to start getting into more of those rutting groups. Uh, but probably around the beginning of October to the mid October is kind of the prime rut. Um, and then after that, they'll often stay in kind of larger aggregations up until the third week of October. And when you start getting getting towards November, you're going to start seeing, uh, and even like the end of October, you're going to see animals moving towards winter range. Um, and for different herds, that's going to be more pronounced migration than others. Some some migrate quite far distances, and and others don't. Yeah, yeah. My uh, my friend Jody Peck, for, who uh, does a lot of work with with Eat Wild as well. And uh, has been on the podcast a couple times, but uh, she's worked in hunting camps all her life as 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 the camp cook. She's also guided a bunch as well. But uh, she, you know, she she said I think it's the 18th of September, where of course she's you know like a number of caribou will come into camp, uh, dead caribou with the hunters, and 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 then she of course her job is to cook stuff, so they, they you know often will take meat off the game pole to cook for everybody. So. She said, I think it's September 18th where she won't, after September 18th, she won't use it um, because it, because it takes on that flavor. Uh, it might be a couple days later, but because we were talking about, um, I'd really like to go back to the the Cassiar country and kind of um, bring my pack rafts and do a bit of a caribou sort of moose effort. But it, the timing is difficult because you, you know, I, I'd like to get cats a bit of the caribou season, but I also want to get a bit of the moose rut. But I, I, from what I understand is that those two, if you capture the caribou rut in the later part of September, when you might want to be hunting moose in their rut, then you might end up with an animal that's not particularly palatable. Yeah. And, and you know, I've read different things too, where some people say it's, you know, how you're handling it and making sure you're staying, keeping the scent glands free of the meat and, and just being really cautious and careful. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know for sure. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, yeah, that's anyway, something to do if you're going to go, past september 15th i would i guess that do a little more research on uh yeah. on the palatability of the meat um so we talked a little bit about like these populations and and of course these wilderness populations like that are doing relatively well and are there still factors in these wilderness populations that i mean i i understand i mean you know if anybody that's probably listening to this podcast kind of knows that logging has had a tremendous impact on the southern uh populations of caribou and, and the, the road access and um, has increased the access for wolves and other and other predators to access these what we used to be remote herds living on top of mountains um, but in these wilderness populations what are what are some of the drivers that affect their population dynamics so I mean like as far as human factors um you know, there's some places where there isn't much for human factors. I mean, climate change is certainly a thing that's going to be on the horizon. Um, and that could be in fact impacting caribou in a couple of different ways. One would be, um, kind of icing events. So you think about these kind of higher, higher alpine wintering caribou. And if you get, uh, freeze thaw cycles, you could end up kind of encasing, um, available lichen for them to eat in ice. Um, you know, I don't know how much that's happening now in these herds, but certainly like up in the Arctic, some of those far, far north herds, um, that's that's a factor that's impacting them. Um, 
you know, differences in uh, probably insect abundance could be impacting caribou uh, and affected by climate change, uh, droughts, and maybe the, you know, the the growth of uh, forage for them and the nutritional um, uh, capacity of that forage. So, so those are some some things definitely, and and maybe like even melting uh, snow patches. So caribou in the summertime often move to these snow patches. Uh, to avoid insects. And so there's some really cool things, um, uh, some kind of, you know, uh, you know, pre-colonial contact, uh, uh, like findings of these snow patches where there's, uh, you know, layers and layers of caribou dung that's been there for thousands of years and then finding arrows and, and things like that. So there are these kind of places where caribou have aggregated for hundreds, thousands of years potentially. And, and you know, you know, we could see those starting to melt off more, which um, makes caribou more vulnerable to insects um, as well. Interesting. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say too, then like kind of as you go farther north and kind of more as you're kind of getting over the border into the Yukon, you do start to end up in um, the caribou winter ranges where caribou are migrating to low elevations and they start running into people more. So like around Whitehorse and and so like the Carcross caribou herd, they're going to migrate from BC farther north and they're going to end up in some of these suburban areas where um, there's a bunch of factors there that that could impact them. Um, generally speaking, though, like um, I would say the caribou population dynamics are still uh, it's a predator prey system. And um, the primary thing that's going to be impacting caribou populations is is predation. And that's going to be mostly on calves and, you know, wolves and bears and and uh, wolverines. Oh, really? Wolverines will 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 have success mm-hmm. with care with caribou calves calves and adults actually but um there was uh some work done in the muskwaka chica and they were putting out some collars on calves and monitoring um kind of uh sources of mortality or what was killing them and they found that wolverine were the the top predator of caribou calves in some places oh i i did not know that i, I just yeah. I, they're sort of small and i guess kind of assume that they i know that they're very vicious and they mm-hmm. make hilarious noise when they walk by you um, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, like a stuffy nose, like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I, that's impressive that they can. Oh wow! Um, mm-hmm. And they can take adults as, as well at times. I've you know we've had some collared animals uh, near here, like down in the Tweed, North Tweedsmere area, and and one particular one that so when the collar goes into mortality mode, um, it's when it stops moving, it sends us a text message to the phone and lets us know that there's a dead caribou and. And, uh, yeah, there was one that was a young bull that was killed by a, a wolverine and just deep snow, crusty snow. The wolverine was able to stay on top, uh, get to its neck and its face. And somewhere through the through the process, the caribou ended up breaking its leg, must have jumped through some broken trees or something. And, and uh, yeah, the, the wolverine was able to finish it off. Oh, my OK, that's cool. Um so why? Okay, so I, I probably should have asked this a little bit earlier. We were talking about, you know, the behavior of caribou, but I. You know, the caribou are kind of known for migration, and and so it, it, it maybe the the larger story of caribou we hear about caribou in the you know up north in the uh, in in Alaska, and and the, and they have these huge migrations of millions of caribou that cross the land. Uh, woodland caribou, the one we're talking about, uh, do they migrate, and why do they migrate? Mm-hmm. They they do and they don't. So some do, and you know, like. Um, like you were talking about those Southern mountain ones, they tend to be now on these kind of islands of mountains that they're not leaving them. They're kind of stuck up there. Um, we look at something like the Telqua herd here 
in the Bulkley Valley in general, that used to be, there were no moose here a hundred years ago. It was only caribou. Um, and they covered, you know, any of the mountains around here, you can still find dropped caribou antlers and, and, you know, the, the Wet'suwet'en First Nations have lots of stories about even Smithers being an area where, um, where caribou used to calve. Uh, so, you know, I think what, what we're seeing is that there's kind of different behavioral types within caribou, um, some that are migratory and some that are non-migratory. And, and what we're seeing that's kind of what's left of some of these herds, like the Telqua herd, is the animals that don't migrate survive because they're up high, they're away from predation. The ones that do migrate down at the valley bottoms, they're, they're getting picked off by predators. As you go farther north, um, those migrations, um, they're happening because of food, basically, for the most part. So they're migrating to lower elevations where they're able to access uh, lichens and other forage that's kind of in these lower snow areas and some of the, the pine flats. Um, but even there, there's some animals that are going to winter the whole year up up in high elevations. Um, but it definitely does vary by herd and not not all herds do. So like the level mountain herd, some of those animals are going to stay up in the alpine year round and others are migrating to lower elevations. Um, a herd like the Atlan herd, there's not many of them stay up in the high elevations during the winter. They're, they're almost completely all um, uh, migrating to lower elevations. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. And each herd has its own kind of unique um, approach to it. Okay. I, I only have a couple more questions for you, but this is the one that I, so like you probably get this once in a while where somebody finds your name in the directory, some hunter that gets your name and says, Hey, I want to go hunt caribou. What do you tell that hunter that gets a hold of you and says, I want to go hunt caribou in British Columbia? Um, wh- where would you take that call? Yeah. So usually what I say to them is like, are you thinking of some places? Is there somewhere you have in mind and you want to tell me about it? Um, you know, mostly what I'll do is I'll send them reports that from surveys that we've done that, that, um, kind of have some information about caribou populations. Um, you know, we're never going to give out information to like a mountain range or, um, suggest someone go to a specific lake or a river or something like that. So keep it generally pretty vague uh, with that information, but, you know, if someone's going to a certain area, I can give them details about the herd. You know, this herd has about this many animals. Bull cow ratio in the last survey was this. Um, the herd beside it, the bull cow ratio was that. Um, and again, like I was saying before, those are kind of point in time things. And so if that survey was done five years ago, it doesn't mean the bull cow ratio is that now. And we're not doing those surveys every year. So, um, you know, I think it, it does take quite a bit of effort from folks to, to, uh, to figure out a place and and you know part of the the fun of it is is getting out there and trying to figure it out on your own right or or talking to people that but but generally speaking we can't we can't give out real specific information well the the, the correct answer was is like you should go take one of the eat wild like learn to hunt <laughs> workshop so you can go and do it safely and be prepared to do a mountain adventure you know listen to the pull bender adventure podcast for the guys got their ass kicked in a winter storm and then come back and talk to me and tell me if you want to go go out into caribou country because it's it is really dangerous i you know as much as we're talking about you know these adventures of, of wilderness i mean you can't lose sight of the um and, and you know this more than anybody just the, the the these these animals live in wilderness and, and um and if you are thinking about taking on one of these adventures uh you certainly need to be uh thinking you know wilderness preparedness and um are you you're, are you search and rescue as well? Yeah, I'm on the the Bulkley Valley search and rescue team. So we've had a few callouts for sure, and and uh, you know I've had my own situations that <laughs> have never 
I've never had to be rescued, but, um, you know, on that caribou hunt, we were, my dad and I, we do a hunt every year and we try and go different place every year and do a little adventure. And, and, uh, anyways, I won't go into the whole details of it, but, uh, pretty, pretty fun story of, of, uh, my dad hitting the SOS on the spot when we kind of got separated for, for a good eight hours. And, and, uh, yeah, he hit SOS on the spot and, and, uh, Led to some in- interesting moments for a while there, for sure. So all your buddies showed up and <laughs> the whole crew showed up. And... Yeah, you never want to get rescued by your own team, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely get, definitely get some type of award at the end of the year, Yeah, but, yeah I'm sure. Uh, very cool. Okay, well, this has been a lot of fun. Okay, I got a couple couple parting questions that I want to I, – I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge around um, – well, around caribou and 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 wild and and wildlife management and a little bit of insight into how it works and how we do our best to sort of understand the population dynamics and how that reflects and how we manage them and that's pretty cool. Um, so I also know that like I, I work with lots of biologists and and public servants and I know how you know challenging the work is that you do and um, but I I'm curious as to you know something that you're proud of in the work that you've done a project that's been a success despite the challenges that you no doubt face as a, as a biologist working where the, you know, I, I know that you're managing uh, populations at risk and there's a lot of pressures on those populations. So the work is difficult, but tell me about a po- like a positive story that you're proud of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. Um, I, I, like definitely in the last few years, I'd say the things that are give me the most satisfaction in my work is, is the the connections and the collaborations that we're doing and, and, you know, even when I started in government 15 years ago, it wasn't happening at all to this level. And it's especially with First Nation uh, governments um, and just the 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 real movement towards collaboration on project is projects is is, uh, you know, really exciting. And I think we're we're kind of at the tip of the iceberg for that and and seeing some of the nations like the Tall Tan Nation, um, you know, really taking taking things on themselves too and 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 uh and and us being able to work with them and and then work with us and being out in the field together um either catching caribou or doing a survey and just being able to be be able to kind of create those relationships and and bonds with individual people um you know there's a lot of things at a biologist level that we don't really have much control over a lot of decision making um and so there's there's lots of things you have to um, have a bit of a thick skin in this position because there's things that are happening and decisions being made that, you know, as an individual, maybe don't necessarily agree with. Um, but, but those individual relationships, like you can't, those are things that that's like a human thing, right? Like you're connecting human to human and learning from each other, you know, like, uh, you know, I've learned so much from the, the folks I've been able to work with. So, um, and, and I think that those successes are only going to compound into, you know, those are successes on like the human to human level. But I, I really do think that those are going to build into, you know, um, on the ground population, biologically relevant changes too, that, that are only going to be good for, um, fish and wildlife in the province. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of, I feel like pretty hopeful in that sense and, um, looking forward to seeing how that kind of shapes up. Well, that's really cool. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that forward. And that's a, really positive way to kind of bring bring this conversation to a close but there is um i think we have a mutual friend uh, Lagode and spencer greening who's also been on the podcast talking about uh, indigenous land management systems and, and working with 
um, you know, incorporating those into current strategies. And it's a, it's pretty cool, pretty cool, pretty cool conversation. Um, if you haven't heard it, it's, uh, it's in the podcast uh, list there. Um, okay. Because this is Eat Wild, there's a couple of Eat Wild parting questions. Okay. And the, and, and the, fir- the first one is uh, because we like to eat really well, what, what is your most memorable meal in the backcountry? Hmm. Memorable meal eating wild. You can go there. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple of years ago, this is just the first one that comes to my mind. I'm sure there's lots, but uh, uh, my dad and I uh, did a trip onto uh, Tagish Lake. And so we were moose hunting on Tagish Lake. And um, and so we were, it was pretty awesome. My dad's a bit older now. And so not as, as uh, can't get around quite as quickly in the bush anymore. Um so we were kind of spending some days kind of just trolling for lake trout, looking for moose on the shoreline and, and just, you know, hanging out, shooting the shit, talking and, and, uh, fishing and hunting at the same time in this beautiful landscape. And, and, uh, yeah, caught some couple of nice lake trout and, uh, took them back, cooked them over the fire that night and, you know, nothing fancy. I think we, we had some salt and vinegar chips or something left over that we were able to use to, to season them. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, just the, the moments and the, you know, the company, that's kind of what made it special, I guess. Awesome. I love it. Okay. That's, that's a great story. Okay. The last story is what is your dream hunting adventure that you'd like to get on in the, in the near future? That's a good question. Um, you know, it doesn't I, have to be I, a hunting adventure. Actually, It could be any, any cool adventure. So yeah. Okay. Well that, that, that broadens it out a bit. Um, I have lots of interest skiing and hiking and things like that, but, um, I'll, I'll stick to, to hunting. You know, I think for me being able to, uh, to spend a longer period of time in a place and it would likely be the Northern part of the Skeena region. Um, but you know, more than the kind of standard seven day fly in, fly out kind of hunt, but, you know, being able to spend a couple of weeks or, or more in a place and maybe, maybe even like access it one way, like by float plane and, and get out another way and, and just being able to really be in a place and, and, uh, and get to know it. Like, I think, yeah, that's kind of top of my list. And, and I do have a, a deferred salary leave coming up next year. So might be able to make that happen. Huh, funny thing. I, so do I. Huh. Oh, yeah. well, maybe we should talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, this has been a lot of fun content. I really appreciate taking the time and, uh, out of, your, out, of your, out of your day and uh, to share your, your 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 passion and thoughts and and um yeah knowledge so so thanks so much for being here and um yeah if, I, if people want to you know track you down on instagram how do they find you uh yeah it's just my name conrad um underscore Thiessen, t-h-i-e yeah perfect and uh, anything else to pass on to the well community before i let you go um there was this one thing i was thinking about before this and and People don't maybe don't know how big a caribou is, but when you're out there hunting a caribou, they're big animals. And if you're planning to hike into somewhere and backpack out in one trip with a caribou, you and your buddy, it's not happening. And so, um, had an inter- I don't want to go on too long here because we're at the end. But um, when I did get my caribou and packed out the meat and and we were loading it into the float plane, the pilot said to me, "Wow, I've never seen so much meat from a caribou." And it, it surprised and kind of shocked me because I just took the meat was that there was there it was a you know a mature large bodied bull but um you know i and i we were when we got out i was able to to weigh it on the on the scale they have there at the float plane base and um shoot i wrote that down somewhere uh it, it was like yeah so boned out the meat was 193 pounds just meat 
uh, the skull and the cape was 55 pounds. So looking at 250 pounds uh, of weight to pack out. So anyways, just keep that in the back of your mind when you're planning a hunt and, and how far back you're going to hike. It's not as big as a moose, but they're big animals. That's as big as an elk. So two, so two, 240 to 280 is what a boned elk, elk is. That That's not including the, the, the head and the hide, but if you're just packing meat. But I mean, I would typically rely on five backpack loads out, not including my camp for a full, for, for a boned out elk. So we're talking comparable pack outs, like five plus your camp. So yeah, it's not, it's not a mule deer. It's not like, and even a mule deer, I think is like a lot of people think they can pack a, their camp and half a mature mule deer. Like I, I'm good luck. Right. Like, <laughs> like, especially if you're bringing out the antlers and any type of cape or something. It's so, no, that yeah. that's awesome. And Connor, that was in my notes here, and I and I, I just didn't. Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you jumped in on that because it's a a good. It's an important thing for people to recognize. They have to have a plan hunt with large groups and um, have a plan to get that meat. And and the other real tricky part about, um, you know, we're going down this road a little bit here, but uh, is it typically when we're hunting these? It's 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 you know August September and the temperatures are up and the and there's bugs out um, and uh, trying to move that meat to a cold place. Uh, in the time that you have is that it takes a lot of thought and it was something that we really thought about on that uh cassiar adventure we had a couple of years ago is how we were going to manage the meat and um yeah it adds, adds some complications so yeah for sure and and kind of being ready to, to leave early you know and it's, it's kind of funny because every time i go into a hunt i'm like okay I don't want to shoot something on the first day or the second day. I, you know, I want to have a good long trip and enjoy it and not have to worry like about calling in the plane to get us early so the meat doesn't spoil. And and invariably, it's kind of like down to the wire at the end of the trip. I've never really run into that problem. But, but you know, I on different uh, work adventures and whatnot, I have definitely seen some folks that did not plan well. And you see spoiled meat out there. And it's just pretty sickening to me to see that, like respect the animal you're 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 out there in this beautiful place and you're out there for the adventure but you have to respect the animal and the meat and and take care of it and if you have to leave early you got to leave early yeah totally yeah we do uh i do a meat care webinar uh, every every couple of months i it's in my rotation of uh learn to hunt webinars and uh I'll eventually have it online, but it's exactly like, you know, I just think it's a, it's almost an essential piece that people should be, you know, really being conscious about how to plan for taking care of their meat. And, um, yeah, so yeah, an opportunity for, opportunity for me to plug that webinar. So uh, yeah, awesome. definitely. Yeah. Awesome. Conrad. Well, I'll, I'll let you go. I hope you can stay on here. I'll, I'll shut the podcast down and then we can just have a quick hello and then, uh, sure. but uh, we'll say bye to everybody. So thanks so much, Conrad, and you can sign off. Okay. I appreciate you having me on. Awesome. Okay. Thanks so much, Conrad. Bye. Hey folks, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Now, we'd love to hear from you. So drop us a question either on our Instagram or email me directly at dylan at eatwild.ca and we'll do our best to answer that question on our future podcast or we might even build an entire podcast based on your questions. So thanks for doing that. So if you want to hear more from Eat Wild, you can come join us. We're doing a series of Eat Wild Learn to Hunt webinars. So we're getting together on a monthly basis, talking about all things hunting with a group of mentors through a webinar format. They're tons of fun. Come join us there. Now, if you happen to live in the Vancouver, British Columbia area, we do 
in-person workshops where we get together, learn fundamental skills for you to be a better hunter. Hope you can hang out for one of those too if you happen to be in the area. Now, we'd love it if you could leave a review or a comment wherever you listen to your podcast. That'd be a great help to us. And more importantly, share this podcast with folks who care about the stuff we're talking about. So thanks for doing that. Until next time, eat well and well.